found on Facebook that we have two exciting pieces of news. Woo! And we're going to tag team yeah. it. The ball team duo is going to come up here and tag team it. You want to take the first one? Uh, I'll take the first one. Um, and I, I don't know if we've actually, like, officially said this or not, but um, if you're a guy and you're on staff at uh, Catalyst, um, we, we tend to like big guys that have bald heads. It's true. And uh, what we'd like to announce officially is uh, Luke is now uh, on staff with us. Shaving so, uh, his head on I got the razor in the car. <laughs> We're going to have a good time. As we've, as we've moved forward, understanding that live stream is a big way with this pandemic, live stream is a big way to reach a lot of people. Uh, the work of all of the tech is went way past any understanding that anybody at this church has ever done. Luckily, Luke is skilled, talented, phenomenal in many ways. And so if you've noticed, our live stream has been sounding pretty stinking good and has been doing a great job. And then our, our sound in here has just been doing great. So Luke's been taking care of that and has been killing it and has been taking weight off of the rest of the staff so that I can stand back there and sing and Scott can stand back there and worship and not have to worry about the small details that we couldn't fix anyways. Yeah, now let me say time. also like, You'll be seeing him around, and you'll, and you'll see his talents, and you'll see his heart, and we're just paying him part-time. Like, he's not yeah. full-time staff, so recognize, like, you won't see him around here all the time. Um, he does have another job. He wants to be what in uh, Scripture they call it a tent maker, bivocational. He got another job, and he wants to do ministry, too, and that's how Paul did it, and if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for Luke, I guess. Um, so we're going uh, to move forward with that, and, and we're going to figure out what that looks like, but make sure you guys love on Luke and his family and just uh, take care of them like we do here at Catalyst, and uh, we're gonna have a good time with that. And mm -hmm. you got anything else, or, or is I he hogging the stage and it's time for us to get yeah, off? Yeah, get out of here, get out of okay. here. I can do the second exciting news. Um, the second piece of information, uh, we have always uh, done shirts, logos, and stuff like that, merchandise, or mer whatever, that's the word for it. Um, and it's always been really complicated. You had to go to the lobby, you had to tell us your size, your color, and then it would come in and maybe it wouldn't fit or anything like that. We have opened up on uh, our hub at catalystchurch.info. You can go right now as I'm talking about it. Bring your phone out, catalystchurch.info. There is a link called Catalyst, excuse me, wow, Catalyst Merch. And uh, on there, there's shirts, hoodies. It's got all of our past designs that we've had. Um, and then it's got a couple of new designs. So there's no more doing one big order and then you gotta like come to the lobby to get it and stuff like that. Everything can be done on the phone. The staff did a big order of stuff, and this is the most comfortable uh, apparel we've ever gotten, and it's also the truest to size. And I would be wearing it today, but my wife got me that shirt, this shirt and said that I had to wear it the next time I preach. So here we are preaching with this shirt on. So Cato's Shirts on Info at the Hub, and uh, I think that's it for all of that exciting news. Was that exciting, or did we? was it like kind of? That was pity. That one was pity because you're my wife and everything else is just like everybody else is clapping. So I feel like I have to. When I was younger, um, I grew up in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Anybody heard of Hampton Roads? How about Virginia Beach? Anybody heard of Virginia Beach? Right. That's everybody knows that. I grew up in the worst part of Hampton Roads uh, called Hampton. And it's just it's just, you know, but uh, I had some childhood friends growing up in our neighborhood and they lived right behind our house at the end of a cul-de-sac, like the very tip of the cul-de-sac, like the safest part of it, and uh, we would always go to their house. Our friend group would always go to their house to play, have fun, for a couple reasons. One, they had the largest yard, and they had no fences. So it was just one giant piece of land with a house right in the middle. You could run circles around it. Great place to play tag, 
hide and seek, all that kind of stuff. Number two, they had a big old playground in the back, like a jungle gym style. It had monkey bars, a swing set, slide, the little fort with the wheel and everything like that. They had it made. So obviously, we went over to their house whenever we hung out as a group. Now, there was a rule when we were at their house that everyone had to abide by. And that rule was that when the kids are out in the yard playing, the dog had to be inside. And when the dog was out in the yard, the kids had to be out in the street or out, out of the yard. This was because they had a pit bull that was very big and did not like children very much at all. So we all knew this rule, and we all knew that when the dog was out, we weren't supposed to be in the yard, and that when we were out, the parents weren't allowed to let the dog out or the kids weren't allowed to let the dog out. Now, they didn't have a fence, remember? So they had an invisible fence. Anybody ever used an invisible, invisible fence before? Right, so it's, it's all about signal, and uh, it's on the collar, and as soon as the collar passes that signal, then uh, it'll shock them or just remind them to, hey, you're not supposed to be over here. And it's marked by white flags. So when the dog sees it, they know not to go there, right? So when the dog's in the yard, everything's good. They're not going to run through, and the kid's going to be in there. Well, one day, we were all in the backyard playing on the, on the jungle gym, on the, on the playground or whatever, and at some point, I decided to stay and swing while all my friends walked to the front yard. Uh, yeah, you can see where this is going, right? I decided just to stay, I don't know, maybe I was moody or something, and I was just really dramatic, just like swinging, just, you know, all on my own. They all went to the front yard. The parents in the house must have looked out of the window on the front and saw that the kids went into the street to play in the cul-de-sac. So we know what time that is, right? That is time for the big old pit bull to come out into the yard. Now, I'm, uh, um, I can imagine what he did in the front yard. He's probably sniffing around, looking around. At one point, I am swinging, and I look to the right, and the pit bull sticks his head out. And we both look at each other, and my swing just goes from, and just settles down. It felt like about 30 minutes while we were staring off. I'm sure it was about five seconds. And it's that point that I jumped up really quickly, and instead of running to safety, permanent safety, I decided to run up the slide to the top, right? So I was safe there. And what do you think the pit bull did? Circling around me like a freaking shark, right? Ready to like bite when I stick my hand in the water, right? So this shark, this shark, <laughs> this dog is ready to get me. I'm up here and I have two choices while I am standing up here on this jungle gym. One, I can make a run for it. I can make a run for it. Two, I could rip off my sleeves, make a fort, probably start a fire with the wood off of that. I could probably live there a couple days before, you know, before that dog could get me, right? That's my second choice. I went with choice number one. So here's what I had to do. I had to prep myself to run. I had to have strategy. When the dog hits this point, he turns his back, and I have about five seconds before he turns back around. I, ch I decided to go with the slide. If I ran down the slide, it'd give me some more speed. Hindsight 2020, no, no, momentum takes in. And that hurts a little bit if you fall, right? So uh, here I am, ready to go. I have, my, I have my route ready to go. He came that way, circling around me right here. I'm going to go down the slide. It leads right that way. I see the white flags of the dog's boundaries. I see it. it is, it's in my view. And I'll tell you what, in my head, I felt like a gun going off, like, like on your mark, get set. I didn't know how to run or anything like that. So... I hear the gun go off my head, I shoot down the slide, luckily I don't trip or anything like that, and I am sprinting full speed. Now, let me tell you about uh, my anatomy and my body when I was that age. I was chubby, and a lot of you guys are like, was chubby? And I'm like, 
words hurt, guys. Come on. I was a chubby little kid. Uh, so, like, I imagine I was just, like, sprinting, like, hardcore. It was probably more like, <laughs> like, I mean, at that speed with the dog right behind me, I could feel his breath on my legs. I could just imagine him tearing my leg off, and I finally dove past the line and rolled across the white flag, and the dog stopped right at the white flag. Here's the most interesting thing that the parents pointed out later. That dog did not have a collar on, <laughs> meaning there was absolutely nothing stopping that dog from crossing that white flag and tearing my butt a new one, right? Literally, probably, probably really like hospital visit hurt me. There was absolutely nothing. In all senses, that dog was a free dog. No boundaries, no shackles, no leash, nothing keeping him back. And yet, he was still enslaved to those white flags, even though there'd be no punishment, there'd be nothing stopping him, he could have done whatever he wanted. And a lot of times, I kind of can make that connection with a chapter that we're about to dig in in Galatians. And a lot of times, it feels like we, we say we're free in Christ, right? That, like, that's the phrase. We're freedom. We have freedom in Christ, freedom in his grace. He set us free and yet we still find ourselves enslaved to other things. Some other things could be sin, right? I think that's the popular one. Like we're, we're Christians, we're free in Christ, and yet we're still enslaved to an addiction that we have. We're still in bondage to a sin that we have. But I think in other senses, what we're going to talk about more today is not this enslavement to sin, but we're going to talk about an enslavement to religion. And we're like, that's kind of weird because that's what we're doing right now. So, like, what's going on? I think a lot of times, and, we're, and Paul's going to dig into this, a lot of times, although we are completely free and there are no boundaries that we have to abide by in the grace that God gives us, a lot of times we put these white flags in places and say, I can't cross that. I'm not allowed to cross that. I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to go past that. And then we live in obligation to these white flags. So today we're going to talk about, um, felt like a professor just pulling that out. Today we're going to talk about Galatians chapter 5. And the feeling that we have about this freedom is not a new thought or feeling. In fact, Paul wrote this entire book of Galatians to tell this church, hey, take up your white flags. Take your boundaries away because you guys are free. And so we're going to jump right in this. We're going to do the entire Galatians chapter 5. If you want to scroll there with your phone, if you want to flip there with your Bible, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Before we do that, let me pray for what we're about to talk about. And uh, as I pray, if you guys could pray as well. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you right now with this, with this thought or this idea that maybe we're not living as free as you've, as you've allowed us to live. And so I pray that right now you will... Um, you will, you'll bring words out that make sense. You will phrase things that need to be phrased so that our hearts can understand them. God, and whatever you need us to feel at the end of this, if it's conviction, if it's peace, if it's joy, that your spirit will move our hearts to feel it. It's your name I pray. Amen. Let's start with Galatians chapter 1. This should be pretty straightforward. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, what? What? I thought we were talking about freedom. What's going on right now, right? Like this is, uh, people that have been in church for a while are like, yeah, that's in there, circumcision, blah, blah, blah. But like, let's honestly look at the Bible with like fresh eyes, and we just read, you guys are free, 
and then he starts talking about circumcision. Like, I don't know what's going on right now. So let's talk a little bit before we dive in about what he's actually talking about. And when the Bible talks about circumcision, we don't have to be like, what? We can be like, oh, that makes sense. I get that, right? So the Old Testament, the OT, the, the Genesis, all the way through until you get to Matthew, is an old covenant, meaning an old relationship. So before Jesus died, the way that God wanted to connect with his people was through this covenant. And he said, he said I, I will love you, I will take care of you, and the way for us to communicate is through these commands, these rules, these laws that you have to follow. When Jesus came and died, he flipped the script and he said, look, we are now in relationship with God through Jesus. Okay, so it's the same exact thing. God loves us unconditionally. God loves us unconditionally. The middle part is rules, boundaries, laws, commands, and over here is just Jesus. There's a straight line from us to God, and that's Jesus. And the mark of this covenant, the mark of the covenant of the old covenant was circumcision. So it's like I'm married to Katie. The mark of our marriage is a wedding ring, right? That's, that's just, I, I love you. I will care for you. Our, we make our vows. Here's a ring to prove it. And in the Jewish culture, I love you, God. You love me, this, that. We will circumcise to prove it. Now, the, Jesus says it's no longer about a circumcision of the flesh, but your sign will be a circumcision of the heart, right? So there's this new sign for it. So when the new church, when Jesus died and there's this new Christian religion going around, the leaders of the Jewish culture would join the church, would convert to this church, but then they'd start putting old doctrine in. Does that make sense? So like, like we are in this new covenant with, G with God, and so uh, here are the rules of our new covenant. And these Jewish leaders come and be like, yeah, but we're also going to add this in. We're going to put this in here, and we're going to do this, right? And it was all marked by the circumcision. So Paul, who plants this church, hears later that there are people that are mixing doctrine up in pretty important doctrine. So Paul drafts this entire letter to talk to them about it. So anytime we read circumcision in the next couple passages, which is going to come up a lot, we're thinking the mark of the Old Testament. We're thinking commands, laws, rules, sacrifice. Okay, so let's, let's go back into it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value at all. So he starts with this phrase, for freedom you have been set free. And it sounds really redundant, right? I've heard it in songs. I've read it before. It's for freedom that you have been set free. And it's like, obviously, you're just kind of saying the same thing over and over. But Paul's writing this to show the permanency of it. The purpose of your freedom is to be free. And the opposite would be the purpose of your freedom would be to be enslaved by someone else again. So Paul's saying, look, guys, you have been set free so that you can live in freedom. Not so that you can live in slavery to sin, in slavery to the Jewish religion, in slavery to the circumcision law. That's not the freedom you've gotten. And another reason, too, this phrase, for freedom, is found, uh, it was actually a popular phrase uh, used back then in the temples. Not the Christians or the Jews, but in secular gods. When a slave wanted to free themselves, they would save up money, save it up, save it up. They'd go to the temple, and they'd give the temple the money, and the temple would buy that slave, and now that person belongs to the gods, and no man can ever enslave him again. Does that make sense? And on their transaction sheet, they would put slave's name, 
this much money, reason for freedom, right? It's very similar to uh, if you fill out a check, if you're paying rent, bottom left-hand corner, what's the purpose? Freedom, for freedom. So God, Paul's basically saying, look, God has written a check for you to be free, and on the bottom note of that check is for freedom in all capital letters. He says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So there he goes again with the redundancy. He's, he's trying to make a point that this is a much bigger deal than you guys actually think it is. And he's using circumcision to sum up the entire law, like I said. But he's saying, look, that law is obsolete. It's antiquated. It's wrong. It's no longer useful in your life today. And it's just like Jesus, Paul said in Romans, it's no longer a circumcision of the flesh, it's a circumcision of the heart. So this is how he's starting it out. He's like, guys, stop, stop doing what you're doing. Use this religion, use this faith, worship God, and stop adding in all these laws that you, you feel like you have to be a part of. So what's the big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Paul wrote an entire letter just to deal with this issue. I mean, it, does, it just seems like doctrine and then just a few extra things. You know, like, why is that a big deal? Here's the problem with it. This new covenant is marked by the idea that Jesus paid everything, 100%. And what the Jews or what these new Christians were saying was, I believe Jesus paid it all, but just in case, I'm going to add like an extra five bucks to make sure that it's good, right? Like, I believe it's all paid for, but, but I'm, I'm going to pay a little extra just to be sure. So what they're saying is, yeah, Jesus died for us. I don't owe him anything, but it wouldn't hurt just to, you know, circumcise my family just to make sure, like, it's good. Or it wouldn't hurt to continue to make sacrifices, or it wouldn't hurt to do this. And what they're communicating is that they don't actually trust Jesus. Think about it like this. If you have, uh, like, a friend that you're like, man, I trust you with my life. We, like, ride or die, best friends. I trust you with my life. And they're like, all right, cool, let's go drive. And they're like, whoa, I, no, that's, that's, I'm not getting in the car with you. That's crazy, right? Like, you trust them with your life, but the second that you think maybe they might get in a car accident, you don't trust them. So is that really trust to begin with? It's not, right? You guys can answer. Is that really trust to begin with? No, right, perfect. <laughs> so it's, it's 100% trust in Jesus, and we tend to do the same thing today, right? So back then, they'd be like, I believe Jesus died for us, but we're going to continue to do circumcision. We're going to continue to sacrifice animals. We're going to continue to do these things, and I think today, we tend to do the same thing, and it doesn't look as bad. It's not as obvious. I think for us, we say, look, I know Jesus died for me, but uh, I want to make sure I'm in good standing with him, so I'm going to keep on, I'm, I'm going to make sure I keep on going to church, which is good. Church is great, right? I, I want to make sure God's not mad at me, so I'm going to give, like, I'm going to keep tithing with what I do. I don't want God to be mad at me, so I'm not going to cuss. I don't want God to be upset with me, so I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And, like, think, like, are all those things okay? Yeah, that's, that's totally fine to do. In fact, you're supposed to do most of that stuff. But what happens is we start to do it out of obligation, Right? Over time, when our mindset is, I don't want God to be mad at me, so I'm like, I should go to church this morning. I should be a better Christian, go to church. It now turns from a relationship with God into an obligation that I have to do for Him. Right? It's, it's chores that we have to check off our list 
rather than a freedom that we're allowed to partake in. And he starts the passage with, for freedom. And yet, within a couple years, you guys already found a way to enslave yourself back with this old stuff. Well, he goes on and he says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. He says it again just for emphasis. But he's saying, look, it's the, the deal here, the real issue is if you're not trusting God with everything and you think that it's like 95% God has to take care of and then that 5% you have to take care of, then ultimately you have to take care of that 5%. Like you have to do it. When I was in Bible college, we had a class called Biblical Doctrines. And it kind of took really tough subjects that nobody ever preaches about because you don't need to on a Sunday morning. And uh, he, he kind of dumbed it down in a way that was like really easy to understand. And we talked about salvation in grace and Jesus dying for us. And the analogy he made was like a board game. And imagine you're playing a board game and like you, you're about to start, you're picking your pieces. You can either at the beginning of the game, choose yourself, put it down and play the game. Now, if you do that, you have to, you have to follow every single rule to a T. You can't break a single thing. And when you mess up and fail, there's no going back to go to start. There's no going back three spaces. There's no penalty. You just lose the game. And the other option is you can allow Jesus' peace to play, and any mistake that happens, any issue that happens, any misroll, any issue that comes up, Jesus takes that penalty, and you can continue to go into the finish line. And, and there's, it's the same thing with Galatians right now. He's saying, you guys are trying to put your peace down to play, but if you do that, you have to play by every single rule. And if you mess up, you have to take the penalty of every single mess up. Right? But if you allow Jesus to play, he's like, guys, it's so easy. Just step back and allow Jesus to play. And when that happens, it doesn't matter what happens. Like, do we want to go on sinning? He talks about later, should we, like, don't use this freedom to continue to sin? No, no. But we don't want it to become an obligation where we feel like we have these chores to do for God so that he's not mad at us, so that we're in good standing. You know, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Like, I feel, I, I feel pretty confident I believe in Jesus, but just in case... I have perfect attendance at church, and I've got this, and I've got that, and everything like that. And he goes on, he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law. So the people that are practicing the circumcision, the people that are practicing this old covenant, he says, you have been severed from Christ. So this thing that connects us to Jesus, their mindset is like, I think it's enough, but just in case, I'm going to put, put a little bit more money down. God paints this picture of like, no, he's now gone. If that's how you're going to choose to play, you have been severed from Christ. And so now you have to be dependent on your law system, which you will fail every time. And then he ends it. He says, you have fallen away from grace. If we try to play this game our way, we will always lose. He says, severed from Christ. Like, how serious is that? Our only lifeline to God Paul is, Paul is almost threatening, saying you will be severed from Christ. And then he says, fallen away from grace. Now, when I first read this phrase, fallen away from grace, I think a lot of us probably, felt, probably thought the same thing that I did. It sounds like, like grace is here, you're trying to do your own thing, and God's like, nope, and then, and then takes it away. That's my first thought. That's the first picture in my head. But really, who's doing the action in there? You have fallen away from grace. Who's the one doing that action? You. Yeah. 
You are. I am. You are. You have fallen away from grace. So this paints the picture that grace wasn't like like removed from us. Instead, grace has always been accessible. It's been perfectly attainable. It's complete and it's ready to go, but we have fallen away. And the term fallen away is this Greek word ekpipto. Everybody say ekpipto. Y'all like, okay. <laughs> ekpipto is a nautical term back then. They knew it. They would, if, if they said the word ekpipto, Everybody's like, oh, sailors, sailors would have definitely known it, people's boats would have known it. And it means to drift off course. So Paul says, you guys have been severed from Christ. More importantly, you have drifted off course of grace. At some point, you had a clear route to your destination. Right? At some point, you had it mapped out, and you understood which turn you needed to take, when you needed to take it, where you had to go to arrive at your destination. But somewhere along the way, you fell off course. You drifted off. Like, you're not lost. You can always retrace your steps, figure out where you're going, and then, and then go back to it. You just missed something at some point. And Paul's saying, look, this church in Galatia, you guys have missed the point of grace. Like you think that you're helping your case by adding a little bit here and there, but you guys have missed the point. So what is the point of grace? If, if Paul's saying, look, you guys believing that and acting that way, you think it's okay, but you've fallen off course, you're, you're off course of grace. How do we get back on course with grace? See, the Galatians wanted to add more to be sure, but what happens when we do that it makes us, like the percentage, as I said earlier, it makes us focus on that 5%. Like if you, no matter how much you had to do, you're still going to focus on your part to make sure it's accomplished, right? Whether it's 5%, 1%, 20%, it doesn't matter. You will always be focused on that. So by having this idea, this off course of grace, you are ultimately focusing on yourself, focusing on how good you have to be in order to maintain good relationship with God. And the Galatians were trying to live by this, by having the Old Testament in there. And it's very similar. Uh, they're saying, like, thanks for the grace, God. I'll stay on my best behavior so I can keep it. And we're like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. I think it sounds more like this. I feel like it's, it's like a son saying, Dad, thanks so much for food and for uh, my bedroom and like for my phone and for a shelter and stuff like that. I'll make sure I never make you mad so that I can keep all of this stuff. Right? Where's the problem in that? What father wants their kid to love them out of obligation? Right? Like how would you feel if your kid only loved you and some of y'all are like, I think my kid only loves me because of that. Well, then that's a different problem I'll talk about later. But how would you feel if your kid was only loving towards you and caring towards you and respected you because of what you offered them? Right? And this is what the Galatians are doing, and this is what we are doing. Many of us are off course of grace today, and we have this false narrative of what grace is all about. We say, grace is about how good we have to be. Grace is about that 5% that we got to work on to make sure that we maintain it. And what happens is it becomes obligation, like I said earlier. It becomes self-focused. We're focused on that 5% that we have to do. It becomes judging others because if I have to earn my 5%, I'm going to make sure they do. Like surely that guy's not in God's good graces. He smokes pot. Or surely that guy's not because he's this and he's that. Like we start judging others because 
we're taking care of our 5%. I'm going to church. I'm giving. I'm doing this. I post a scripture a week. Got to make sure I do that, right? Like we are making sure that our 5% is taken care of. And when we do that, we start judging others. Another thing we do in, in this false narrative of grace is we start to hide our sins and our imperfections. And we start to hide our shame, right? Like we feel like we can't truly be ourself in front of people because what if God finds out? Or what if, what if they see that I'm not actually at 100% here, I'm actually doing pretty stinking bad? What if, we, what if we lose our good standing with God? Ultimately, it comes down to we feel like we have to maintain perfection. Maintaining a relationship with Jesus is ultimately maintaining perfection, is what it feels like. We feel like we can't be before God with all of our sin, with all of our crap, with all of our doubt, with all of our misunderstandings. We feel like we can't do that because if we do that, we're telling God, I'm not good enough. Ultimately, what we're doing, we're acting this way and we, and we follow this false narrative of grace. We're allowing our hearts to lead us. And my biggest pet peeve, when I hear people give advice, <laughs> biggest pet peeve, just listen to your heart. Just follow your heart. It'll all be good. Your heart will never lead you astray. That's a load of crap. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things uh, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, I, I hate that phrase. Follow your heart. No. When we become self-focused, when we become focused on the small percentage of stuff we have to do for God to still love us and care about us and give us grace, when we do that, we're ultimately following what our heart thinks is best. Because we're already not listening. And Paul's like, look, you're following your hearts. And Paul knows this, that our heart's going to lead to that, because the very next phrase that he says is, for the flesh, this is in Galatians, right after he talks about this, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. Why would he randomly put that in here? If we're talking about you guys are free and no longer, you don't have to follow the old law, and then he's like, the desires of the flesh are this. I think it all connects because he's saying, you guys are off course of grace, and here's what's going to happen. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Your heart is in conflict with what God's will is, so that you are never to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. There's a ton. Sexual morality, impurity, impurity debauchery, idolatry, da -da -da, fits of rage, selfish ambition, uh, factions, and envy, drunkenness. Here's a fun fact. I'm just going to stop. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Just a fun fact I learned this week. Orgies here is actually referring to when athletes won an event, they would go out and party, and they would drink, and they would sleep around. It's interesting. That's why it says drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And you're like, those don't go together. I would assume the way we view orgies is probably also on this list as well, just assuming that. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, your heart following you, your heart, your heart telling you what to do or leading you, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's, that's pretty severe. He starts off by saying, it is for freedom you've been set free. And then he works his way down, but you guys are missing grace, and ultimately you're letting your heart lead you, and now we're at, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we live by our rules, then our fleshly desires will ultimately lead us into sin. It will ultimately lead us away from God. It'll lead us into destruction. It'll lead us severed from Christ, which brings us to the main focus of grace. We got the false narrative. 
right? We said the false narrative of grace is that it's focusing on how good we, we have to be. So what's the actual focus of grace? I think grace is not about how good we can be, focusing on what we can do. I think grace is about how good God is. It's not about how good we can be. It's not about that 5% making it the best that we can. It's about how good God is bringing Jesus, bringing that connection. It's not about how much we have to offer. It's not about our sacrifices. It's not about our payment. God knows that we can't afford what he's giving. God knows that we will never be able to afford it, never be able to pay it, and he knows that, and because of that, he's offering it freely. We will never be good enough. And, and he even says, uh, even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Even at the best you could do, if you tuned up that 5% and made it like really good and you were just awesome, God's like, that's nasty. <laughs> like, that's just, that's just how it is. We will never be good enough. And you know what happens when we come to terms with that idea that grace is not about how good we can be, but grace is about how good God is? When we come to terms with that, a huge weight is lifted off of our shoulders. When we focus on accomplishing things, we will get burdened with those things. When we feel like the only way to succeed is by uh, doing these things, we will ultimately fail at those, and, and the burden will be too much. Because what does failure lead to? Failure usually leads to shame. Shame leads to just more self-defeat. Self-defeat leads to depression. You just spiral out of control, and we become bogged down with this impossible task that we've put ourselves in by saying, look, I know, I think Jesus can do it, but like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this stuff to make sure that Jesus's power does work. And when we do that, we're putting this impossible weight on our shoulders and we ultimately cave into our fleshly desires. But when we turn our focus on how good God is, then it's no longer an obligation. It's now a freedom. When we turn our focus on the fact that God is perfect and that what he says is true and that it'll cover everything we're doing, then we can step back and say, I don't have to perform anymore. I don't have to mark these off my checklist anymore. We have a freedom to be more like God. And Paul ends this with a very famous passage, the fruits of the Spirit. Anybody heard of the fruits of the Spirit before? Right, right. It says, all the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's how I've understood that before. And I think as we study the Bible, we understand things differently. We see it in a different light. Here's how I used to understand the fruits of the Spirit. At the end of the year... Everybody looks at their life, and they're like, man, I want to be better about that. So they make, what, New Year's resolutions, right? For Christians, we're like, man, I really want to be a better Christian. I want to do a better job and stuff like that. So what do I do? Okay, I'm going to work on these. Here's my checklist. I'm going to be love. I'm, I'm going to love better. I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have peace, patience. I'm going to have all of that stuff, right? That's my checklist. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be a better Christian for God so that he'll love me more, right? Day one. Uh, you might be okay. Lose your patience a little bit. That's fine. 
Day two, you're driving to work, you get so mad, you flip someone off and you did not show any love. Day three, you're not joyful at all because you've had a really bad day at work. Day four, and it just keeps on spiraling down. And, and how do we feel at the end of that? Generally, we're like, oh, man, like, I'm trying. I'm really trying my hardest to be better at this, but I just can't do that. Because we're focusing on how good we can be. Right? We're focusing on maybe I can love better, maybe I can be that, and once I'm that, then I'll have this, this security in my salvation. Right? A lot of people view, uh, view salvation as fire insurance. Right? That phrase just came back up this past week when I was talking to someone. Right? This, this like, we don't want to go to hell, so I'm accepting Jesus, and then I'm going to add a few things to make sure, like, that's my insurance, I'm good to go. When we focus on how good we can be, the fruits of the Spirit is just a list and of stuff that we have to try to be like. But if we focus on how good God is, then we can sit here and say, God loved me so much that even when I was at my worst, he chose to die for me. And that kind of love right there, I just want to sit in that love. And the more that we sit in that love, the more that we are respond in love to others. Or we can say, you know what, God was so patient with me when time and time again, time and time again, I went back to that sin. He was so patient with me while I'm still in this addiction. He's so patient every time I mess up. And I am so happy that he is patient with me. And I can sit in that and be like, man, I want to be more like that. Here's what it comes down to. How often are we motivated by self-loathing? Like, it's not generally where you're like, man, I just hate the way I am, so I'm going to be better. Generally, a, a, a big motivation for people is they see how others are succeeding, how good others are doing, how well their lives are doing. And they're like, man, if I, I want to be like that. And so we, we don't think about how good we can be. We think about how good God is, and we can sit in his love. We can sit in the joy that he's given us. We can sit in the fact that he is kind to people that do not deserve it, ourselves including. We can sit in the fact that he's perfectly faithful and that if he promises something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Or if he promises that he will protect you, he will protect you. Like, we can put our armor down. We can put our swords, our weapons down. We can put all the stuff we're trying to do to, to compete and to maintain a relationship with God, and we can sit in God's presence. Now, we just talked about here in the Father's house, that first song we sang. Let your shame at the door. Keep it at the door because God is perfect enough that your shame doesn't even matter in his presence. Like God loves you so much that it doesn't matter that you can't be as good as you want to be. And let me just give it like a quick, a quick disclaimer. We didn't read this verse. It would put us on a whole other rabbit trail. Paul does add in there, do not use this freedom to, to help yourself in sin, to indulge yourself in sin. But instead, sit in the Spirit. And let me tell you, there are some people today that are exhausted because they are always trying to prove their worth. They're always trying to maintain this grace that God has given them. They're doing that by hiding their sin, by doing extra stuff. They're trying to hide everything. 
my encouragement this morning is to just sit in the favor of God. Sit in His grace, knowing that no matter what you did last night, no matter what you did this morning, last week, no matter what you're going to do next week, God is still perfect love. That's not going to change. And He ends it, I love it, He ends it with, against such things there is no law. He starts this by saying, you guys are trying to live by this law, and if you're going to do that, you have to keep every single law. But Paul is saying through the fruits of the Spirit, look, if you just rest in God, then it doesn't matter what law you break. It doesn't matter how many times you mess that commandment up. It doesn't matter how many times you mess up. He will never change feelings about you. There's no law you could break that would make him love you less. There's no rule that you could keep or attendance chart that you could perfectly fill out that God will be more or less faithful with you. Regardless of how you act, regardless of how I act, God is consistently love. He's consistently joy. He's perfectly peace. He has unlimited patience. He is kind to everyone. He is good to everyone. He has a gentle heart, a gentle spirit, and he has self-control to know how to deal with stupid people like us. Let's remove the focus on how good we have to be. Remove that 5% and just rest in the fact that God is always good. Let's ditch the obligation and stand in the freedom Let's pray. Heavenly Father, man, we get lost sometimes. We get, we get bogged down with this idea that we have to keep boundaries. And it, like we have to add in some stuff to make sure that you'll still love us. God, let us, let us see that idea for what it really is, and that's just garbage. God, I don't know what this looks like for each person in here, but let us just spend the next five minutes, ten minutes, sitting in how good you are. Let us fully understand that your grace means that we don't have to keep on fighting for our salvation, but the battle was already fought a long time ago. God, let us worship you. Let us sing to you. Let us understand your love for us. And let us be more like you. Amen.